0: I learned this week uh, that apparently it's a little bit of a faux pas to recognize current veterans or veterans on Memorial Day. That that's a little bit of a faux pas. That they don't they want the attention to be given to those who have paid the ultimate price, who have died, uh, given life and limb for the service of country. And so um, I mentioned that to Paul this morning, and he was he was kind of like, it seems like any time we can think veterans is a good idea. And it's like how weird that one day this is the one day we're supposed to like not. Like, let's be thankful for those who have, who have died in the cause of, of purchasing freedom for all of us, even though we are obviously grateful for all those who serve, continue to serve, or who have served, because um, everyone risks that when they do that. So again, make sure that we are always grateful for the gift that God gives us of those who serve in military. Um, speaking of grateful, um, it's cool to say I, I have sat under the teaching um, of one of my sons, Bible teaching of one of my sons. Um, and today I was blessed to be led in songs of worship uh, to God by my daughter. Um, and it, it strikes me, um, John, you know, in 1 John, John references that, that there's no greater joy than knowing my children walk according to the truth. And I think my adjustment to that would be, except maybe when they lead me to walk according to the truth. And uh, that is, that's pretty awesome. So um, uh, Ellie would not want me to draw attention to her. So I have both services. Um, Laughter. Because uh, I'm super proud. All right, so today in 1 Samuel 14, we're going to be looking at an account. It's one story. It's 52 verses, and I'm going to read all of them, so prepare yourself. But it is a, because um, it's, it's one account, you can't break it up easily and catch the narrative. And so um, I think what we're about to read about, we're about to read about Jonathan <clears throat> and his shield bearer defeating the, the garrison at Geba. I believe, if you want to try to create a timeline, we've talked about how hard that is with Samuel, that you have certain things that are chronological, but then you have these stories of events that happen that seem to be just taken like, oh, and you got to hear about this. Oh, and you don't want to miss this. Oh, and you you can't miss this. And this is one of those. And I think this story is actually, the context for it is found back in chapter 13 in verse 3, where it says, Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it, And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear. I think that's what we're going to do. That account, which gets one verse back in chapter 13, I think now gets its whole entire chapter. Some people don't agree with that. They think that maybe this happened twice, um, that, that, that Jonathan defeated this garrison at least twice. All that's possible. That's my opinion. So in unpacking the event, let me tell you what we're about to hear. So as I read through it um uh, it can be challenging for our ears sometimes to hear um even the biblical english and 52 verses like that um so what we're going to hear about is Jonathan and his shield bearer are going to take out a garrison of Philistines in a very unique place we'll talk about that the the shield bearer honestly kind of steals all his scenes you're going to see that it's a great experience to see that the potency the faithfulness the devotion of the shield bearer um he really shines in this account um the garrison then falling, starts a cascade of Philistines um, panicking and running for the hills and retreating. The Hebrews who are with the Philistines, apparently there are some Hebrews with the Philistines. Are they collaborators? It sounds like maybe so. Maybe they're just slaves or servants. We don't know. But there are some some Hebrews with them. They rise up against the Philistines as well. Uh, Maybe they even are the ones, maybe they had some weapons for a change for Hebrews. I don't know. Um, And it seems like some kind of in the midst of this, some kind of earthquake may have happened, um, the ground shaking in some ways. So Saul, at this point, Saul, who is not here, begins to notice the Philistines kind of running in every direction. His, his, his uh, watchmen catch on to this. They come to him and go, the Philistines are all panicking and running for some reason. The Hebrews, um, uh, the, so the, the, he starts the advance. We'll, we'll clean this up like next week. But he starts the advance Um, against the philistines with one not asking for god's input we'll talk about that next time at very particularly not asking for it then um, on top of that he apparently makes some kind of an oath that that doesn't make a lot of sense where he says until nightfall no one can eat anything and this every every commentary much less the bible itself is going to call this out as extremely foolish um, but that's, that's Saul, instead of looking to God, he looks to his, his own wisdom, his own understanding. He makes this proclamation, and it's a tragedy. <clears throat> no one really knows why he did this. Even what necessarily he was doing doesn't make a lot of sense. So no one eats until the battle is over. Um, Jonathan does not hear this instruction, because remember, he's fighting uh, the Philistines already. And so he eats some honey that is on the ground. The Philistines scatter, the Hebrew people fall on the spoils because they're starving, um, and they end up eating meat, probably raw. Um, They end up killing animals and eating the meat raw. They don't cook it. That is a direct violation of God's law the the Hebrew people are not allowed to eat meat with blood in it. And so Saul is going to try to come up with a a little short-term solution for that. In the midst of it, before Saul says, "Do I attack again?" God does not speak to Saul or gives him a no or something, and Saul assumes therefore there is sin in the camp. And then, in a strange situation that will be all kinds of difficulty um, in unpacking next week, in the midst of all of this, it seems that God points to of all people Jonathan. In this, so we'll talk about that next week. And um, a lot to def- that he had defied the king. He had somehow been the one responsible for sin. Saul then swears to execute Jonathan, Um, but before he can execute Jonathan, the people defy Saul. So again, you've got these people who desperately want a king until the king makes a decision they don't like, and then suddenly they want a democracy. And they all vote Saul down. Um, Saul does is not, is not get to kill uh, Jonathan. Saul goes back home. The Philistines go back to their base, not chastised, but not utterly defeated. Um, and assume, I'm assuming that they go back to Mi'kmash and then continue their raiding. Um, so that's what we're about to read about. I'm going to read through it, but I want you to have those, uh, that skeleton as we flesh it up. I, I will say these stories, <coughs> these accounts are very meaningful and very powerful. Um, we need heroic stories. As human beings, we need examples of people who do mighty heroic things for God. Um, Just mighty heroic things. People who step out in faith, people who step out in trust, um, and the the power of that, the greatness of that, when we see people actually do things God's way. And it startles us sometimes, it shocks us sometimes, but it's a powerful picture that, that we can get. And we need those. And right now, just so you'll know, our culture is trying to end those. It's trying to take those away from us. And I, I think we need to defy that. <coughs> the, the idea that there are some people who lead the rest of us, who make exceptional decisions, hard decisions, godly decisions, courageous decisions, is something that the world is trying to take from us right now. The culture is. It's saying everyone's the same. No one's exceptional. We're all replaceable. Um, we're, there's nothing special about anybody. And the truth is when we face the hardships and we learn and we grow and win God, we place ourselves on God's anvil and in his fire to shape us and mold us and heat us, um, to prepare us to do great and mighty things for his cause and for his kingdom. That's an example the rest of us need to see, and we get to see Jonathan and an unnamed shield bearer do that in amazing ways in this story. So here we go. <clears throat> I always like to read through the entire passage. Every once in a while I forget or I miss it or something, but... Um, I'd rather do it that way just because I believe God's Word will speak on its own. So be listening to the Holy Spirit to illuminate. Um, The Spirit has inspired this. Now listen for the Spirit to illuminate in your own heart what we need to get from this passage. So here we go, 14. One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were there with him were about six hundred men, including Abijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on one side and a rocky crag on the other. The name of the one was Moses and the name of the other, Sina. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, behold, we will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. And they say, if they say to us, wait until we come to you, they will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, "'Come up to us,' then we will go up to them, for the Lord has given them into our hands, and this shall be the sign to us.'" So both of them showed themselves the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, "'Look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've hidden themselves.'" And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor-bearer and said, "'Come up to us, we have something to show you.'" And Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, "'Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel.'" Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor-bearer after him." <clears throat> and they fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer killed them after him. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made, killed about twenty men within, as it were, half a furrow's length and an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, and in the field, and among all the people, and the garrison and even the raiders trembled, and the earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, "'Count and see who has gone from us.' And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor-bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, "'Bring the ark of God here.' For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult of the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. And Saul said to the priest, "'Withdraw your hand.' Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went to the battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was very great confusion." Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. And the men of Israel had been hard pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people saying, cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening. And I'm avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. And when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge of the people with the oath. So he put the tip of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, your father strictly charged the people with an oath saying, cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint." Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoils of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. So they struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Agilon, and the people were very faint. And the people pounced on the spoil and (coughs) took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he had built to the Lord. And Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives, who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan, my son, he shall surely die. There's not a man among the, all the people who answered him. Then he said to Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan and my son on the other, and the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me, or in Jonathan my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people, Israel, give Thuman. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, Cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan, and Jonathan was taken. And Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I will die. And Saul said, God, do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die? Who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly, and he struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malkashua, And the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Merab, and the name of the younger, Michal. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimas. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. The very words of God made it through. So as we see, the people desperately wanted a king right up until they didn't desperately want a king anymore suddenly. And instead, we jump to this account. We see this (coughs) account start with Jonathan, the son of Saul in this passage, verse one, again, back to that. Jonathan, the son of Saul came to the young man who carried his armor. Come, let us go over to the Philistines. This is, this is the plan. He didn't tell his father. Now, one commentary notes in this, because it says here, Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah and the pomegranate cave. Now, most of the commentaries agreed that the the rendering here, cave, is probably not as good as tree. Um, That the pomegranate tree... Now, it might be there was a cave called the pomegranate cave. Um, But the rendering is more likely to be tree. And one of the commentaries also pointed out that Saul seems to really like trees. We regularly see Saul sitting under a tree somewhere. Like Saul really likes trees. But those of you who have been to Israel know what a tree represents in Israel. A tree doesn't just represent a landmark, although it can be that. What it mainly represents is shade. What it represents is a place to go and rest, to take your ease in the shade of a tree. Um, There's places we go when we go to Israel that it's hot and sweaty, especially in June, and we're exhausted, and then we stop and sit under a tree, and we do this teaching where we talk about what the value of sitting under a tree. Now, so it may be that instead, this is our first look at the difference that this chapter is supposed to show us between Jonathan and Saul. This is really a two-character study, this chapter is. It's a study of the character of Jonathan and the study of the character of Saul, his father, and the vast difference between the two of them. And we start right off the bat with Saul being described as staying and Jonathan being described as saying, come, let us go. So right off the bat, that seems to be an important piece here. Attention is drawn to the differences between these two. Whatever Jonathan has, Saul seems to lack it. This is a story of two men... I believe, and the differences between them. Jonathan is offended by the infestation of the Philistines of his homeland. He, he does not go to his father. The prince here is acting under a higher authority. He isn't going to the king or to his father because there's a higher authority... God. And Jonathan believes, apparently, that he is called by God to go and attack the Philistines in this setting. In fact, we'll see that he then actually defers. He's going to lay out a little bit of a test, like, is this God? Is God leading us? Let's see if that's the situation. Um, It reminds me a little bit of uh, David. (coughs) Again, we're going to run into later. We're only a few chapters from David and Goliath, so get ready. Um, It's going to be awesome. But this, this, um, I, I love that chapter. So the This, this, What we see here in this account is, again, like David is going to show up at a battle line and go, y'all have been sitting here 40 days, and no one is offended by this Philistine? Someone needs to go kill this guy. And it's kind of Jonathan here, like, we're sitting here under the pomegranate tree, and there's a garrison of Philistines just right over the hill. Why is no one doing anything about this? So the Philistine there, God himself guides him. Here we have this, the Philistine garrison was a rocky crag on one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes, which means shining. Maybe it was reflective. Maybe it was shining from the east. The name of the other, Sina, which means thorny. Um, having gone down hillsides um, in Israel, um, some of them are thorny. Um, I'll just I'll, I'll leave it at that for now. I'll tell you the story someday. So, um, but a fun note in history is kind of cool here, and I just couldn't pass it up. This is one of those uh, rabbit trails you get caught up in when you're preparing a sermon, and I read this and was like, oh, I got to share this. So you ready? Fun note from history, those are history buffs out there. In World War I, the battles of World War I included sweeping through the land of Israel. The British and the Turks fought battles in Israel proper during World War I. Um, And so here's what's wild. British troops who didn't already have a Bible were given a Bible when they arrived, not just because of the devotional value or the prayer value or whatever, but because of the value when it came to geography. Geography is it literally people going into battle were reading about the, where they were going to be in battle in the Bible to find out about the geography of the region. This is wild. So the Turks at some point held this town called, ready? Micmash. So the Turks had fortified Micmash, and the British were trying to figure out how do they take Michmash from the Turks? Well, one of the British soldiers thought, that sounds really familiar, MicMash." So he goes to this account finds it and brings it to his commander he says that apparently there is a pass somewhere that might get us a a, a, a surprise attack on Micmash if we could take it with stealth and with a small group and if we took it then maybe we could take the armies in to Micmash through kind of the back door ready here's the historical account from one of the men who was there "...the general decided then and there to change his plan of attack, and instead of a whole brigade, one infantry company alone advanced at dead of night along the pass to Michmash. A few Turks met were silently dealt with. We passed between Bozes and Sina, climbed the hillside, and just before dawn found ourselves on a flat piece of ground. The Turks who were sleeping awoke, um, thought they were surrounded by the armies of Allenby and fled in disorder. We killed or captured every Turk that night in Mkmash, so that after thousands of years the tactics of Saul and Jonathan were repeated with success by the British forces. You know, see them here. They are. This is Moses and and uh, Moses and Sina. Um, these are the two rocky outcroppings that that it lead into one one way one form of access to. This is the, where the Philistine garrison would have been. Um, you can still go and visit it today. It would have looked probably different 3,000 years ago, uh, but this is the general place where we're talking about. The little specks, by the way, down there walking along the, the trail are cattle. So that gives you a size of how, how big these, the scope is there. Um, the little black dots there so that's that's it's significant you can imagine they being up on the hillsides being philistines who had a garrison there to make sure no one could sneak into mcmash um, by this uh, kind of secret pathway in and this is where jonathan and his shield bearer attacked so now back to three thousand years ago Um, Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord by saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart, do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. This is the poetry of the shield bearer. What a beautiful way to say it. This is faith in action. Real faith, not superstitious Faith. Very often, even in church settings, you get the superstitious version of faith, whereas, where it's, it's taught incorrectly, where the amount of my faith is what matters, not the object of my faith. I mean, that's, that's incorrect. The, the, the um, amount of faith, as Tim Keller, um, who passed away recently, talks about, one of his great quotes is about, if you have a lot of trust in a weak limb when you fall off a cliff... Your level of trust is not going to help you. If you have very little faith in a strong limb, it can save you. And so that, that same principle applies. Us putting the proper kind of faith. For example, often on church signs, I've seen this up on church signs. Faith is not believing that God can. It is knowing that God will. This is a misdefinition of faith. This is not correct. Um, Now, I've seen this quote many, many times, but until I looked it up this week, I had never seen it assigned to anybody. So it turns out the person famous for saying this is Ben Stein. You know Ben Stein? The Bueller guy? Now, I like Ben Stein. He's done some good work. He does better journalism than a lot of journalists do. That being said... I don't know that he's necessarily the theological powerhouse that we need when it comes to defining faith for us. This is just a flat error, in my opinion. It isn't that. The truth is, true faith is knowing that God can and not knowing whether or not he will. I think that's actually the true understanding. This is more like pagan superstition. Should we have confidence in God? Well, of course we should. Should we believe that he's going to act on our behalf? Of course we should. Should we work hard to not doubt him? Well, of course we should. James teaches us that. Jesus teaches that. He taught it especially to his disciples. But when we say faith in something, <clears throat> remember that in the Greek, the word be- we, we use the word belief in English, but in Greek, faith is a verb. There's a verb form of faith. It's a noun or verb. And so you say, like, we should be faithing in something. What do you think God is teaching us to faith in? in our proper words, in the worthiness of our request, in the amount of, should we be faithing in our faith? That's, that's circular and a bad idea. No, what we faith in is the character and power of God, not in our ability to manipulate God successfully to do our bidding. That is a mistake. It is a mistake to think that that's what it's all about. If you don't believe me, let me show you some of my favorite examples of this in the Bible. This is one of them. when when Jonathan says, let's go see what God's going to do because who knows? Maybe God will deliver them into our hands. What does Jonathan know for sure? That God can do it. With many or with few? What does he not know? Is he going to? So Jonathan's like, let's go see. Let's go see what God's going to do. He's not alone in this. He has good company. Joshua 14, 12. This is Caleb Demanding his, uh, the property <coughs> that he was promised. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you have heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. In other words, giants with giant fortified cities in the mountains. That's what Caleb is demanding. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out as the Lord said. It may be. Can God drive them out with 80-year-old with Caleb? Sure. Will he? I guess we'll find out. We see it with Daniel. When we studied Daniel, the three Hebrew men who faced Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar demands that they bow. And here, here's what they say. He says, I want to throw you in the fiery furnace if you don't bow. They say this, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. In other words, he may deliver us from the fire, or he may deliver us through the fire. We're going to be rescued from you one way or the other, either as ash, as we're rescued from you, or he's going to protect us through the fire. Listen, he can. I guess we'll all find out together whether he's going to, in what way he's going to. Verse 18, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. Our faith is in God and in His character. We're obeying Him. If, if He saves us, decides to save us through the fire, great. If He decides that we're going to burn up, fine. He's God, we're not. Mark 9:24. a father with a, a, um, a child who is very ill comes to Christ, and, and Jesus asks him if he believes. And his response is this wonderful, beautiful prayer. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe... Help my unbelief. How, how's that for pathetic faith? Is he believing and not doubting? Oh no, he's, he is ridden with doubt. This is, I think, a beautiful prayer that we probably should pray more often. Lord, I believe. I mean, you know I don't really. <laughs> you, you know perfectly well that my belief is just hanging on by a thread. My faith in you to act in this way, forgive me. I'm terrible. I'm, I'm not getting it. Luke 5, 12, maybe one of the greatest of all. Jesus was in one of the cities, and there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately, immediately the leprosy left him. What did the leper know? That God can heal him. What did he not know? whether he was willing to do so. That is, exact, that is faith. God still gets to be God. He decides how he acts. We know he can. Now this doesn't rescue us, does it? In fact, in some ways this makes it harder. Wait, you're saying, Chris, that God <coughs> can answer any prayer that I have? He can heal my friend of cancer. He can heal my family member. He can do these things. And what you're saying is that he's decided not to? That's exactly what I'm saying. If he doesn't, he can and he has decided not to. No matter what it is we throw at him, he can do it. He, it. Whatever you've got in your mind right now, he can do that thing. Now, what about the situations where we want a miracle or even need a miracle? Here's what I would say. Keep going to him. Because one, he's the only one who can. And he loves to give good gifts. We trust in him. We pray to him even when we know He may not give us what we want. We're going to close our time today with one of the greatest examples of that in the Bible and the confidence that we can have even when God doesn't answer our prayers the way we want. We trust Him. We go to Him and we keep praying, trusting in Him to know what is best. We pray in the name of the Son, according to the will of the Father. There are a few things we know He's promised us. He will save us if we ask. But will he heal us in the moment? He may not. Will he? I don't know. To quote Caleb, maybe. The biblical account is that we do not know. Sometimes, yes. Sometimes he does. Sometimes, no. My experience, my personal experience is often not. Often the things that we ask for, he does not do for us. Sometimes he does and sometimes he does in amazing ways. And sometimes it seems like his answer is no, and instead he's given a yes that is beyond anything we would even know how to ask or imagine. He, he will sometimes answer with a yes that I would never have asked for. Because to me, my first moment is, that's a train wreck. But then it turns out what I would call a train wreck, he has then used to answer the very prayers that I've asked in ways I couldn't even possibly imagine. So my encouragement to you is, You have a friend or family member who is sick or ill or in need of Christ, and and yet you have not seen that happen, keep praying. We We don't always understand the mechanics of prayer, but we can trust in the character and perfect knowledge of God, just like these people did. As Jonathan and the shield bearer did. So here we have Jonathan, behold, we will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will then we will stay in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come to us, then we will go up, and the Lord has given them into our hands. This, by any standard, is a terrible plan. This is not the way you should be doing this. You don't say, hey, they outnumber us, they outweapon us, they outman us, and they are in a fortified position. So if they say attack us, that'll be proof that God is telling us to attack them. That's amazing to me that that's Jonathan's standard. That he, you tell Jonathan wants to fight. <coughs> this is, of course they're going to do this. And, God, and Jonathan says to God, God, if you want us to attack them, have them invite us into their fortified position on the hillside when we're outnumbered at least 10 to 1. Good? Okay, good. You just let us know, God, that if they ask us to come attack them. And, 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 so, and by the way, it's prophetic. That's exactly what they do. And it's actually joking. The way it is in the language is, is like the Hebrews come out. They're like, oh, some of the Hebrews are coming up out of the holes, like rats and roaches is meant to be the imagery. <clears throat> um, hey, hey, come up here. We have something to show you, right? We got something in a box that you're going to, they're just, they're messing with them. Yeah, come up here and show us. And Jonathan turns to the shield bearer and is like, hey, follow me up. Now, how did this work? We don't know. We don't know exactly what happened here, how this played out. One commentary says they probably saw the Hebrews yell to them, Hey, come on up here. And then got back to whatever they were doing. Like, well, it's not like that's going to happen. Right. And the next thing you know, there's a guy with a sword right in their midst, cutting them down. Or maybe they're sitting up there laughing at them as they're coming up, right? Like maybe there's a princess bride moment where he's like, he coming up the la- you, just, you, know, you come on up and then we'll, when you get up here, we'll fight. And they get up there and he starts slaughtering them and all of a sudden it's not funny anymore. He's knocking them down and the little shield bearer, which is probably a boy, is walking around behind him with a pointed stick, sticking them and finishing them off until there's tw- all of a sudden 20 of them are laying dead and everybody panics. The Hebrews come out of the holes and 20 of us are suddenly dead in just a, in just a moment. So they start panicking. When you're fighting against the enemy who kills you 20 to zero, you get worried. What if another one of them comes out of a hole, right? We're in big trouble. And so the Philistines start panicking and falling on each other, and they start cascading all around a place, and it's, a huge, it's a, a huge failure for them. So he does this, in verse 14, at that first strike which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length and an acre of land. In other words... In a very small amount of time, in a very short distance, Jonathan harvested 20 Philistines. God lined them up in a row and he knocked them down. Now, this is a great account. This this shield bearer is such a great account. Um, John, do you want to come up and, like, this is one of John's favorite stories. And anytime I'm, teaching on something that's one of the staff's kind of favorite stuff. And so I was like, John, you got—you got to share, what is it about this guy, about this shield bearer, that that you love so much, inspires you so much? So take it away. Yeah, uh, I mean, how can you not love this boy um, with Jonathan? Jonathan's a warrior, warrior age. This this guy's probably younger than him and his servant. And so, you know, Jonathan saying this is what we're going to do, he doesn't have a a whole lot of choice. um, But I don't know... uh, if it's just his words, but his words are, I think, are a great example to all of us um, of um, not only deference, but loyalty and devotion of uh, submission of of making Jonathan's goal his goal. Because he doesn't say, you know, whatever's in your heart, let's let's go get it done. He said, whatever is in your heart is in my heart. And mm-hmm. so I'm going to put my heart into your heart and make it happen. So that is awesome. Pretty great. It's it is. And we don't see much of that. Again, this is part of the example we need in this, in this win-lose society. We need to, to get examples of people who do that, who say that. John is one of those people, by the way, if you know John, who has that attitude in that heart, if you know John at all, who says, all right, let's see what you got going. Let's see what's in your heart. Let's do it. Um, in fact, on that note, <laughs> I want to take a second to do one of our little Thanksgiving dinner moments here um, in the service where I share with you guys um, just a little bit about what's going on in some, of the, some aspects of the church stuff. And so, um, uh, this, and this fits perfectly in with what we're talking about here because um, I will tell you, it is, it is unbelievable the, the staff that you guys have. Um, it is amazing what God has done here and what God continues to do. I brag on this team all the time. Um, it's one of my favorite things. I, I've, to, I've told you before, like when, when people who don't really understand leadership come and meet the staff, um, that kind of stuff, it's one of the ways that I've kind of tested um, when we've had um, uh, consultants and stuff come, is if they come and they somehow say, like, say something to me about something that I've done, I know they're not going to be much of a worthwhile consultant. The good ones are the ones who come, meet with the team, and then pull me aside and go like, you've put together a phenomenal team. Like, yeah, you get it. I cannot tell you how dependent I am on, and anyone who knows me well knows how dependent I am on the team of ministers who you guys have, uh, have chosen here at the church that we've selected here. We just got back from our staff retreat last week, um, developing uh, the week four, but the, developing rapport together, learning together, growing together, enjoying each other, building friendship, and really what that comes down to is another example of us digging wells when we're not thirsty. Um, So that in the tough times when we face challenges or whatever, we have a team that's ready to to move and act. Um, And as our church staff, our church and our church staff grows, um, roles change. We have organizational shifts and stuff like this. And let me just tell you, I want to be able to honor these men and women of God sufficiently, but it's not, there's no way to do that. To to the justice, I I can't do justice to it. Um, You would if you had any idea, really, kind of behind the scenes, how hard they work, um, how much diligence they put into things, um, and how much sacrifice their families make in so many cases. It's it's really amazing. This is a generous church. You're a very encouraging church. Please keep that up, especially with the staff. Um, It means a lot to the staff when you reach out and say, "I see something that you're doing," and a lot of what church staffs does. I've talked about this many times, but Is they do stuff that we don't understand the value of it, that even we don't, because that it's kind of like this: that there's a day when you go, "Hey, today was the day everything was going to fall apart," but because of some decisions you made two years ago, it didn't happen. Well, we don't know how to celebrate those, do we? How do, you, how do you celebrate that? Like, hey, today was the day when we would have had a moral failing among a member of our staff, but because of healthy decisions that we've made two years ago, it didn't happen, praise God. Well, we don't know how to do that. And so I will tell you so much of the work that your team does, that your staff does, is like that. Um, so, But there, we are making some, because as the church grows and our staff grows, we are making a couple of changes, particularly in my direct report. So I'm going to show up on screen. It's, a little, it's small. Um, this is our organizational chart. So you can see the staff is not tiny anymore. Some of you remember when it was like me and Beck, right? And that was kind of it. Um, so we've got this, this, this whole team of fantastic ministers and servants. Um, we serve in all these various different roles. I will remind you once again, <laughs> Um, out of desperation. Kimberly, uh, Kim Weber is going to be leaving in another about month or so, a little over a month. And, uh, and so I will, I am looking for an executive assistant and I'd like for it to be sooner rather than later. So, so that Kim can train them because she knows how to do that. And I don't. And so, um, uh, and it also means she could help interview them. That's how dependent I am, uh, just so you'll know. Um, but I want to focus in a little bit on uh, the pastor's And to show you some of the changes, so we have enough pastors now that typically in the past, the way I've done it is we've had all the pastors, we meet together for executive discussion, but there's now enough of us that that is not efficient use of executive decision-making. And so I've now, we've got, we've got six pastors. Three of them will be considered executive pastors um, with that, and then three will be not executive be pastors. So they're all pastors. Three of whom. This does not. This, this does not. Just so you'll know. Like let's clear up. This does not represent a, a demotion on anyone's part. That's not. They're all still pastors. Um, but the, the the reporting line is changing a little bit, and then the titles change a little bit. So just make sure everybody knows. So. Paul McKenzie, who you see on Sunday morning, he's the executive director of announcements. That's his job. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, uh, The executive teaching pastor... So you know him, obviously, he is our operational officer, our, our COO at the church, he handles so many things that I have no idea um, what he handles, um, it just doesn't fall apart, so I know he's doing his job. And then um, also he's uh, main advisor for me um, in many ways when it comes to sermon prep, and, and he obviously teaches uh, more than anyone else but me, um, and he's, and does a great job with that. There's a lot of, a lot of stuff there, huge job, I'm quickly summarizing it. Um, Blake, who's been here about a year, is, is going to be on the executive team. He is the adult ministries pastor. So we're seeing a lot of innovation and new stuff there, a lot of college stuff. You've already heard about some of the summer Bible studies, stuff like that. So there you go if you want to be involved there. That's him. Uh, Rebecca Lizenby, who's um, executive director of Next Gen Ministries, um, meaning uh, the kids, the youth, and all that kind of stuff. And then the, that team is, is the executive team with me as far as figuring out, cradle to grave, big overarching church stuff. Then um, Lance Sturrock, who is the shepherding pastor, um, if, you, if you haven't met Lance, one, that's not likely, um, but if you've not met Lance by some chance, um, you will soon, I'm sure. His, he has two main jobs, and one is to shepherd people in times of trial and difficulty, um, like deaths and funerals or sickness and hospitalization. He's most likely to show up in your hospital room, which is great for him to pray with you and be comfort for you. He's excellent at that. And then also as you're starting to get involved with the church that he will, he will come and hound you until you become a member and get involved and get invested um, with what's going on at the church. Um, so he's a vital person. There's a whole wing of what would be, I would have to be taken care of that he can do to take off my plate, to take point on that, which is vital to me. Um, And then this is the the biggest change, which is also um, really amazing, um, especially going back to what we just talked about um, with Jonathan and his shield bearer. So in a few weeks we will represent 10 years um, that John Redfern has led us uh, in worship here at this church. And he has done a phenomenal job. His philosophy is sound, his theology is phenomenal. And here's what's amazing. He's a strong enough leader that as of a few years ago, some of you probably noticed, and we've talked about it and prayed about it, speaking of a prayer that God has not given us a yes to yet, that John's singing voice through medical issue began to go away. And he could no longer lead in the singing. And so being John um, the type of leader that he is, he began to raise up Colson Lechner to be able to take on more and more of those responsibilities As we made this decision with the pastors, and I'm saying, I I need to limit my hours that I've spent in certain meetings, and so I need to be able to meet with the worship pastor, but I can't just add and add and add. And so I started talking with John, John, what do you think about the idea of you promoting Colson to be your boss? And before I even got the whole sentence out, John said, yes, I'm ready to do that. I want to do that. And so John got to uh, promote Colson to be, we just recently done this, and in the middle of, middle of June will be official. Uh, but you, for you, you, what's wild is John, you've already noticed, I mean, Colson's up here more often than John is, way more often than John is for the last months because John has been preparing him to take this role. And uh, this, is, this is a great example of exactly what we're talking about with the shield bearer, someone who says, well, what's, what do we need to do? Let's do it. I'm with you heart and soul and i've had john reporting to me for a decade and i can tell you colson is super blessed to have john reporting to him this is a this is going to he is an empower uh, in amazing ways and so that's good john is this is this is not don't think of this in any way as a demotion for john i understand the change on the org chart and so in some sense maybe it looks that way there's, there's not there's not going to be a change john's responsibilities are not particularly shrinking There's still more um, than one person should have to bear all the av type stuff all the changes in here all the it type stuff all the hospitality stuff so Guests, when they visit our property, tens of thousands a year visit our property for different things. John's in charge of all of that Wednesday night stuff, Sunday morning. So, so just catch, like he's got plenty to do. Um, and he will be partnering with Colson in regards to um, helping make sure that our worship experience is all that it needs to be. So, I am super proud of John and him being willing to lead in that way um, and excited about Colson getting to be um, one now, one of the six pastors. Um, at our church as well. So if you're ready to get involved in some new way um, in regards to worship or whatever, this is a a great time to be talking with them about that or with AV, IT type stuff. There's just some of the changes. One of the things that we really need at this church is someone who's paying attention particularly to the stuff that's going on behind the scenes. And so we need someone of John's caliber to be looking at that too. Um, so this is huge for me I am so honored to serve with them Um, I've done nothing to deserve friends like this I've done nothing to deserve fellow workers and warriors like this Um, this is this is an amazing thing that God has raised them up remember back in in, and back in this chapter in verse 7 the armor bearer said do all that is in your heart and do as you wish behold I'm with you heart and soul Um, it was it was a cool thing when I was at Pine Cove for several years to learn that not only is it fun to be David but it's pretty it's pretty awesome to be one of David's mighty men um, and to see these men um, and women step up in this to serve our church is just amazing to me. But I wanted you guys to see the org chart stuff so that you know who to talk to for different things. Remember back in, in 1 Samuel 10, Saul went to his home in Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. So um, this is a, these are men and women of valor and surrounded by me. I can't fathom ministry without saints like this. And in fact, here's what's wild. I would encourage you more on this in the future because we got lots of this to look at. Let me encourage you. If you do not, church, if you do not surround yourself with godly men and women who know you and love you and do not fear you, forget ministry, you're going to fail at life. And This is what God called us into. When we face hard times, we need the truth about who God is, but we also need the truth that only other believers can speak into us. And if you don't have that, you're in huge trouble. The, the fall is coming. And so I would strongly encourage you, if you don't have that, begin to invest in it. Dig those wells now um, before you're in a vital situation. Um, those who, um, uh, who will come alongside you, I am so blessed by this team, and I'm so grateful to this team, so thank you um, very much. So you can, we can come on up as we're, as we're wrapping up um, our time here. This, this is my encouragement from there. When Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. Look around and see who can be these people in your lives, that God can bless you in that. Um, If you will stand with me, and uh, as we celebrate, and, and even in the hardships and difficult times that we face, as we celebrate what God has done, even as we don't fully understand how and why God does what He does, what prayers He answers the way He answers them, let me encourage us with this passage. As we have a time of invitation, if you would like to come and pray here or pray over in the corner, get to have someone pray with you, do that. Um, we would love to. If you want to talk more about knowing God and praying to Him, you don't know Him personally, we'd love to pray with you about that and talk to you about that. Um, if you've been through our welcome home process and you're ready to come and join our dysfunctional family, uh, we would love for you to do that as well today. Let me wrap up our time with this passage from the Apostle Paul writing in his second letter to the Corinthians. On behalf of this man, I will boast.